most recent lie was that Michael's father had had a heart attack while in prison. We lost him. What the doctor meant to say was that George Sr. had escaped, a feat he'd accomplished by using the family's portable stairway vehicle. Excuse me. Are you the blue? Dr. Wordsmith, how's my son? He's going to be all right. Oh, oh thank God. Finally, some good news There's from no this guy. no other way to take that. That's a great attitude. I gotta tell you, if I was getting this news, I don't know that I'd take it this well. But you said he was all right. Yes, he's lost his left hand, so he's going to be all right. You son of a bitch! I hate this doctor! He's a very literal man. Yes, just... that's more the way I would take the news. Excuse me, Mrs. Funke. Oh, this guy again. How is he, doctor? It uh, looks like he's dead. Oh, my God! Oh, little guy. The tears aren't coming. The tears just aren't coming. Uh, just to be clear, it looks like he's dead or he is dead? It just looks like he's dead. He's got, like, blue paint on him or something. But he's going to be fine. What is wrong with you? doctor! I'll let you celebrate privately. Welcome to episode 83 of Tell Me Where to Turn. After a short hiatus of one week, we are back. You can find me on Twitter at Tommy2 underscore zero. You can find me at Point Break underscore Dave. And um, well, I'm waiting for Glenn to... Oh, wait. Glenn's not here. It is a... Dave and Tommy only show, and listeners may want to get used to that. So if you have been cheering for Glenn to be permanently off the show, let's just say that maybe the slightest glimmer of hope is coming your way. There's a good chance next episode, episode 84, starts with myself and Tommy doing the 10 bell salute for Glenn three underscore eleven. So we talked about we talked about this. I think it's usually involves you, but when somebody sends the you know eleventh hour last minute, hey guys, I'm not going to make the show text. Well, we got one of those texts from Glenn today, but I must say it was it was it carried a little more weight, a little more gravity than the usual ones, because it said, "Hey guys, I'm in the hospital." <laughs> So, such a shocking text to get. Yeah. And I got th- I feel like the responses he was getting from us weren't exactly in the sensitive side of uh, the sympathetic and sensitive side. No, we it was pretty much immediately launched into as many jokes as we could come up with. There was a, at one point I had set my phone down and came back and, you know, there was several new texts in the group. And considering it's a serious medical situation, the amount of times the phrase doo-doo was texted back and forth is shocking. It really was. And and for for uh and I don't know I don't know exactly where we stand now, but for the better part of the afternoon, Glenn was or thought to be dealing with what has to be one of my top three greatest fears right now, which is the acute onset appendicitis. I fear this very much. I don't know if I've told you that. That's funny because I, you know, you hear about it. Obviously, you come in, you know people that have had it. That thought has never crossed my mind. (laughs) Oh, I think about it multiple times per day. (laughs) <laughs> pretty much pretty much every time I turn funny and I feel like a little pain anywhere in the abdominal area, I'm like, oh boy. I'm Here we go. entirely sure I have a general idea of where the appendix is. Is it on a certain side or is it? Yes, but as somebody it... who has researched this extensively on Google, it starts with radiating pain around the belly button. And then that okay. pain slowly starts to move to the lower right. 
And when you start having a radiating pain that you feel like is moving down lower, that's the telltale sign that um, you're going to be under the care of an emergency physician in the next four to six hours. And if you have, because they remove the appendix, right, in that situation. Yes, they, they remove it entirely. And any long-term effects or are you, you, you good after that? No, I, I, I think that even to this day in 2018, they're not exactly sure what the appendix really does. And people are fine living long, healthy, prosperous lives sans appendix. That's interesting. In fact, I've heard, and this may be urban legend, This we might have to save this for our conspiracy show, but I've heard that they will proactively remove appendixes of people in certain high-level func- job functions where a sudden appendix attack could be jeopardizing to national security, for instance. So if you're a Navy SEAL or a spy or something, that they may just go ahead and get that sucker out of there so you don't have to deal with the possibility of it later. Really? Now, again, this, this may be more for the conspiracy episode. And maybe that's what Glenn's up to. Maybe he just realized that, you know, the basketball playoffs are probably coming up pretty soon and he didn't want to let Jaime Escalante down by uh, <laughs> having an appendix it's actually just going to go and get it taken care of today I don't know that would be a that would be a bold move I want like is that one of those things where obviously if you're having an appendicitis that's a di- different situation but if uh you're you're uh fact there is actually or is true that people just do it is that a is that a risky move when you know th- three years down the road s- science figures out what it's for you're like oh oh no yeah and it's it's like something really important like length and or girth is associated exactly. with it exactly oh, just man. like oh man but it sounded like at least in our most recent conversations with Glenn he did decline the uh, generous offer I extended him to join us by phone for an interview from the hospital yeah that would have been uh, especially if he's really uh, getting IV morphine right now we should definitely have him on the show no in fact it's to the point where I almost considered just driving to the hospital just to have audio evidence of morphine drip Glenn (laughs) so do you think they would have a lot of questions if we roll into his hospital room and start setting up the mixer and pulling (laughs) mic cords out. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that we would probably be visited by a hospital privacy officer pretty quick. But Hey, maybe, maybe interview. Maybe they're a fan of the show. You never know. (laughs) Got lots of listeners. (laughs) That would be news. But Kind of towards the towards the latter part of the evening, Glenn seemed to think that they were shying away from appendicitis and, and honing in more on some type of infection, which is scary to me because it's. Uh, I told you I was afraid of appendicitis. I'm also afraid of infections. <laughs> but that did harken back memories to your situation a few years ago with the infection. So and how indeed. Qui- how quickly that can spiral out of control. But I believe Glenn said that they were about to load him up on antibiotics. So as somebody who has also been loaded up on antibiotics, what what does Glenn have in store for him in the next 24 to 48 hours? You know, I believe the the common thread on antibiotics is it gives you the it gives you the diarrhea. Most extreme uh, diarrhea. You know, I I didn't have. I didn't really run into that when they were giving me the the super MRSA antibiotics that they were uh, pumping in me when I had my well, leg well, re- issue. Yeah, reset reset the story a little bit because we are on episode 83. Mm-hmm. I'm so mad Glenn's not here. I had a whole 83 joke series that you're not going to get at all. Is it had NASCAR with, related? Had to do with Brian Vickers. I was going to say, you know... This episode is going to start out really promising and strong and then <laughs> develop some kind of weird blood clot issue <laughs> and ultimately not even be allowed to be a podcast anymore. You're just going to have to trust me. Glenn would have loved it. Like he would have been die- he would have spit out his his uh, fireball. He'd have been dying. 
well, I'm sorry. But and now we can at least find out if Glenn is the appendix of this podcast and not really needed. <laughs> I think we both know the answer to that question. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, so I guess we've had 80 episodes since we actually told this story in episode three, I think it was. Yeah, so just 80 episodes ago. So quick recap, playing in a just generic city rec league soccer game, uh, get kicked kind of in the side of my shin above my ankle, no shin guard there, feels like just a bad bruise, um, go home, ice it, go to bed, next day, right about a little after lunch, just start feeling like physically sick. Uh, come home, go to bed, like six that night, wife wakes me up and she's like, wow, you have a, you, you know, you're burning up. I had a fever of a 103.7. Ooh, a telltale sign of an infection. Yes. Yes. Um, still don't think the two are related and my good friend, Tommy takes me down to urgent care Tommy, noted alarmist. Noted alarmist. But in this uh, in this situation, was uh, he was right with his uh, his urgency. Um, so go down there, and uh, doctor determines it's an infection. Oddly, ding dong, doc in a box. Doctor makes the bold claim of, yeah. Um, if it got into your bone, if there's like any kind of even tiny little fracture, then they're probably going to have to take the leg when you get to the hospital. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you think at an urgent care place that line's issued like per per decade? Yeah. They're probably going to have to take the leg. And I've, like when he first said it, he didn't, you know, obviously we ended up going to a legitimate hospital emergency room, but he was like, yeah. I think he even said we might have to take the leg. I was like, <laughs> "There's <laughs> no way, there's no way they've ever done an amputation at Primacare." Give me a break. Basically, be the uh, like the Civil War amputation. <laughs> you think that would be like out of network on your insurance? Like they would get the Primacare bill and they'd be looking at it and they'd be going, "Wait a minute, what does that say?" There's no way this can be right. <laughs> there's um, no way we're covering this. Yeah, but just just to kind of fly through the story, uh, they sent me to the emergency room, and I don't know whatever they put on that paperwork or that call, when uh, we showed up there, man, they were ushering me right back. <laughs> they getting, had the bone saw <laughs> already spinning. <laughs> getting getting x-rays, getting all kinds of things. Um, yeah, so... I was I was in the hospital for five days. Um, they the first three days they were pumping me full of antibiotics, but couldn't get the the fever to break. My uh, leg looked like something out of like a Alpine disaster movie. It was like huge black section. Do you remember that, Tommy? Oh yeah, no, vividly. This is the craziest. Could barely could barely stand to be in the same room as something so repulsive. Um, and then finally, like the uh, the third night, in very unscientific way, the doctor essentially said, "F it, we're gonna give you drugs for MRSA, and that'll kill whatever it is." Because they'd done cultures, which they hadn't got back yet, and what they determined it was was a a gram positive antibiotic resistant form of staph. Um, so that's why none of the antibiotics they had given me before were working. Um, one of the funny is it to be is it to be assumed that this was uh, obtained or acquired because the guy that kicked you had doo doo on his shoe? <laughs> they never they never said doo doo. That's left to medical text between me, you, and Glenn. Um, okay, but no, it was it they found a tiny little cut on there and that's what they determined like there was some kind of bacteria on the dude's cleat that got got inside my leg so uh, isn't it a little scary that we're pretty much living our lives on that razor's edge right there yeah but hey modern medicine man i'm good as new 
have a if you want the ultimate large discolored patch on my leg, but other than that, it's still there. Um, but the funny yeah, thing, did you ever go back to that Primacare to show the guy? Walk in real triumphant. I still yeah, got it. missed this one, bud. Um, I think the oddest part of that ordeal was when I was leaving. They're like, oh, you know, we'll have some people come by and tell you about your antibiotics for when you go home. I was like, okay, cool. So these two, I don't know if they're some kind of tech or I don't, maybe they were nurses. These two guys come in and they're like, um, yeah, so we're going to talk to you about, you know, your antibiotics after, you know, we discharge you from the hospital. I was like, okay. And they're like, so we're going to put a, a pick line in your arm. And I was like, what? And they're like, oh, yeah, the antibiotics you need have to be given through an IV. So, yeah, they put this crazy, uh, they basically like threaded up a vein. So it's like all the way, like the, when you attach something to the pick line, it's basically pumping the antibiotics like right into your heart. And, uh, yeah, they, I had to go to an, another doctor, an infectious disease doctor and get, which was also awkward because every uh, pamphlet in the waiting room was about HIV. Yeah. I was going to say they, they saw you coming in there and they had you labeled as twink right away. (laughs) Didn't they? It was weird. Like sitting in the waiting room, just looking around at all the other people, like all these people have the HIV. Guys, I'm just here because I play soccer. Um, so were you like being extra careful in there? Just oh yeah, I wouldn't touch a thing. Keep that keep that wound covered up real well. Um, no yeah. unprotected sex with anybody you met there. Obviously, <laughs> goes without saying. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, I had to get IV bags from that guy and store two two or three weeks worth of IV bags. I think, yeah, we had to keep them in the fridge. And then every night I would get home from work and they gave me like one of those wheelie IV poles and I'd hook it up and attach it to the pick line and sit there for 30 to 45 minutes and let the thing drain. It's still amazing to me to this day that you didn't encounter more side effects from that, that you didn't, that you didn't just have three weeks of just explosive diarrhea i did lose i think i lost like 25 pounds oh wow yeah because when uh when i i was on the antibiotics like you just weren't hungry at all so yeah i lost a ton of weight but other than that yeah no uh no bathroom problems which hopefully Glenn will experience because that'll make a much better episode 84. No, and, and honestly, if he doesn't, I'm going to want him to embellish the tale that he does because that's all anybody's really tuning in for. So if we had to uh, make a guess, is it Taco Casa or Inno Explode that's to blame for whatever he's going through? <laughs> That's going to be named in the lawsuit. <laughs> exactly. Hey, I can call their their company hotline if it's in a explode. But let's think about that, though. That's a good point. So you you end up with some kind of severe intestinal infection. Yeah, I'm I'm pointing the finger. I'm calling that number that you called a few weeks ago. Well, you probably called, uh, and I forgot the company name of who makes in explode, but... You call their customer service, it just has like a automated prompt, like, if you're experiencing a heart attack, press 1. <laughs> I don't know if they have bowel distress or whatever Glenn has, but... If it, yeah, it, I'm, I'm betting for every one bowel infection, they have 10 heart attacks, at least. Maybe there's 20. No, there's no doubt. But yeah, let's, let's hold a good thought for our buddy Glenn, and we're going to try... Uh, we're going to try to put him through this, but you know, I was thinking it, it would probably be just right if the show set up a GoFundMe page for Glenn. But the problem is Glenn has insurance and he's rich. <laughs> so we've kind of already lost like the two real pull at your heartstrings themes of all GoFundMe pages. Yeah. It'd be uh, like the little GoFundMe description would be like, yeah, don't worry. All is 
his you know medical bills are covered his copay's fine he just won $15,000 on DraftKings but in fact I want to talk to his I want to talk to his doctor because if they do have to like remove one of his intestines and put it back in I want them to go ahead and just etch the DraftKings logo on there cuz we know that's <laughs> who's paying for, for for this you know the uh the, the the Milwaukee Brewers stack is paying for the, for every every bit of this uh, emergency medical treatment he's receiving this week. He really should, and I probably have it because he texted us, like find that lineup and just tag all of them in a tweet. Like, thank <laughs> you guys. <laughs> yes, uh, Jonathan VR, thank you for coming off the bench and having three at bats, including a home run. <laughs> You really saved my medical yes. care. You saved me from going upside down in medical care. So have you ever Actually, that's a- that's a great idea. In fact, Dave, that's your assignment when we're done while I'm editing the episode. Is to start tagging Milwaukee Brewers and giving them updates on Glenn's condition. I don't know how many of those guys even read the tweets they're tagged in, but they, there would be so much confusion. Yeah, well, I, I'm gonna have to uh, I'm gonna have to send a uh, a tweet to the NHRA after we hang up. Um, would you be interested in listening to a quick bit of audio? Absolutely. Hydraulic pump. If it's not burning the fuel, it's gonna try to jack the cylinder head off, and it looks like that may have been the case. So, is that something you normally would would do to a cylinder head? <laughs> oh wow. Was yeah, that, uh, who was that? That was Tony Pedragon, former racer, <laughs> going extremely blue in uh, <laughs> describing an engine explosion. That's not even a real term involving like car failure. No, and the other thing is too is there's really two cylinder heads on the motor so you kind of have to do some kind of a middle out situation <laughs> if that was even going to be possible the double double shake weight <laughs> yes but yeah i may wow. be while you're while you're tweeting at uh at the milwaukee brewers i'm i may be uh i might be having to inform nhra of this uh of this unfortunate choice of words let them know tell them you were watching that with your young son and he was not prepared <laughs> to hear that type of language Oh, speaking oh, of young wow, son, funny. you got a minute to talk wrestling with me? Absolutely. Oh, hey, so I went. I went. Uh, I went out to grab some lunch today, and the uh, the storm had wiped out all the traffic signals. So I'm just we're we're sitting at a light that should should never be more than like a twenty second wait, and I'm stuck there behind ten cars, waiting as we go one at a time on the blinking red. And I look up, and the car in front of me has an Alexa Bliss bumper sticker. Oh, wow. I didn't notice like, you were right behind me at that light. <laughs> we should have gone to lunch together. We were right there. What were we thinking? That's. <laughs> oh, man. This, and I may have told you this from when we were at WrestleMania. The number of, a lot of them were Ronda Rousey, but the number of grown men wearing Rousey... Alexa Bliss, Sasha Banks t-shirts were much higher than I would have ever expected. Like, I would have, if you'd put it at five, I would have taken the under, and I probably saw 80. That is that is pretty surprising to me, actually. I, I mean, I, I appreciate to a degree the women's matches, but I would never think as far as merch sales or people, you know, having to decide the one piece of apparel they're going to use to show their fandom would would go that direction maybe rousey i could see but it was really weird especially like you know i feel like if you have multiple wrestling t-shirts like you at least put some thought into what you're wearing to wrestlemania so you're going you well know, top of the batting order for what you're going to wear to wrestlemania and and that was it yeah, I just bought seven Get These Hands t-shirts, so I have a clean <laughs> one to wear every day of the week. Terrible. I think I may have told you this, but I wore my Ico Pro t-shirt to WrestleMania. Yeah, that's awesome. And that thing was over, man. Everyone we walked by was like, man, that's awesome. Where'd you get that? 
the shirt was more over than actually Ico Pro was over. <laughs> I'm afraid. Ico Pro. Stay hard, Ico Pro. Back in the day, was as over as that T-shirt was. It'd still be in business. There's n- no doubt in the in the mid '90s that Ico Pro caused some intestinal infections, oh, some no. heavy infections. Maybe that's what happened. Glenn found like a old Ico Pro protein bar on eBay and bought it. He's trying to trying to look like Lex Luger, and next thing you know, he's at the hospital. So, uh, so did you watch the uh, greatest Royal Rumble? <clears throat> You know, I I didn't get to watch all of it, and then I heard a hot tip from you that, eh, not that great. I watched the beginning, and... Yeah, as long as you watch the first 10 or 15 minutes, because it was cool, like, I mean, the crowd was nuts to start, but the, the event was five hours, so it's kind of the same thing as that WrestleMania phenomenon, by the end, man, like it was just—it's just too much in one sitting. There was a lot and, of weird uh, things. It was weird, and I think they mentioned well a couple of weird things. One in the beginning—it was in Saudi Arabia. That's weird. In the beginning, they were doing this whole like promotional, uh, almost propaganda piece on Saudi Arabia, and they were like. Oh yeah, but that was why they brought him there to do that. Talking to this woman, and this is modern day. This is 2018, and she was like, "Oh yes, I've never, you know, I've never been more happy to live in Saudi Arabia than I am right now." And she's like, "Like last month, they just (laughs) they just passed a law to allow women to get driver's licenses." (laughs) I know, right? And I wanted to like crack up. I like. Yeah, I could see why you weren't happy before now. And you should probably set I, I your even noticed a little higher if this is the <laughs> happiest you've ever been. I even noticed in the crowd, you know, because you had mentioned that the last show we were together, you know, that they weren't sending the women wrestlers over, which makes a lot more sense given the fact that they couldn't even drive a car <laughs> until this year. But I even noticed that there, that there was barely a woman in the crowd i mean they there was a handful a lot of them were kids yeah but it was it was pretty much all men and a lot of them were in that um whatever their traditional dresses with the you know head covering and the kind of the robe yeah the robe uh, but not like a with feathers that says nature boy on the back <laughs> of it just like a plain one and you also know but, much like uh we used to accuse the uh college brochure of the school we went to that would always um they were sure to find at least one representative (laughs) of every race that went to that yes they would find the one guy you know they they get danielle manning out there for every photo because he was the only one there in the uh you know they maybe showed three or four different women and you know those were the only four women there like they like those were the plants that had had all the propaganda memorized. Yeah. It was like the uh the cheerleaders that Kim Jong un sent to <laughs> the Olympics. Wow, what a reference. Um but yeah, and But the other thing that was annoying is is they, they've got the hard camera, which which you know is a wrestling term, which means the the camera that's that's shooting into the ring that's always pointed the same direction. Mm-hmm. And they always kind of you know they're Vince McMahon's famous for stacking the crowd in front of that camera so that it always looks full and it's always the most you know energetic people. Well, all the people behind the hard camera, I'm guessing, are you know the elite of Saudi Arabia because they all have on those the, headdresses the and the tape, robes, but the they would not headdress. Yes, so, the 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 uh, like checkered yeah, like kind of Italian festive summery joint. Memorial Day, like made you like real hungry for hamburgers <laughs> and hot dogs and stuff. But they would not sit down, and I don't mean like up cheering. They're always just like milling about, walking around, turning around, and because of the stuff they have in their head, it's like super distracting. No, and I, I'm like, I thought the exact. Could they not thing. have gotten like a like a more docile crowd there? Because yeah, these guys are just constantly moving around. I'm like, sit down. No, they said something. You got John Cena in front of you. Sit down. They said something in it about like. Obviously, this is a American term, like the first family. But they, 
and it was obviously more than just a family, but they said something about it. It was some kind of... The royal family. The royal family of Zamunda. <laughs> um, also, really weird that they always refer to it as the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Isn't that weird? I mean, hey, maybe that's the branded term. they got to get so. in their talking points. It's like the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. Yeah. Maybe you're right. But yeah, I thought that was always weird. Like, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, but yeah, I watched... I wa- I, f- I, f- I fast-forwarded some, but I, I watched the majority of it. I watched the entire 50-man Royal Rumble, which is 20 people too many for a Royal Rumble. They had to scrape the bottom of the bottom of the barrel did, to get guys out there. But did Titus what ever, the knock on it... Did he ever get in the ring, or...? <laughs> He got under the ring. Yeah, he did. <laughs> you know, he he did he did make his way in, but the the uh, the knock on it was that that it was a great show. That, you know, it was an amazing visual spectacle, but the way it was booked, it was just it was a glorified house show. No title. They had seven title matches. No titles changed hands. The guy that everybody knew was going to win the Royal Rumble before it started won. Yep. You know, there was no real. There was no real angles or surprises. You know, the only thing that I liked, uh, because as has been well documented on this show, Elias is our, my favorite wrestler. Indeed, he he had a great run in there. They he was in for over thirty minutes. They let him throw out Kurt Angle. They let him throw out Randy Orton. You know, they gave him a little bit of a rub in there. Now he did eventually get thrown out by Lashley, which is ridiculous. But <laughs> I was glad to see it. What I was hoping against hope he would do, and he didn't do, because I, I think he probably would have incited violence, okay. is if he would have come out with his guitar and just done the, the whole typical bit, only just really bag on Saudi Arabia for just being a terrible place and, you know, dirty and sand. But, yeah, he didn't do that. That would have been, yeah. Obviously, he couldn't do that, but since that is... It might have caused the end of the entire WWE, but it would have been great. <laughs> Um, so do you have anything more on that or can I talk about Raw real quick? No, I'd love to talk about Raw in Montreal, man. And that crowd was crazy. That crowd was hot, man. They were that was a hot, I, 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 there was a guy that had a sign that said, bring WrestleMania to Montreal. And I'm in for that, by the way. That crowd was nuts. What, um, this shows how bad I am with Canadian geography. What time zone would Montreal be in? Um, football. <laughs> That's helpful. It's well, we know it's at least you know in one of the four U.S. time zones, so we're we're probably yes. good. It's in a time zone. We're we're pretty sure on that. But they they always say, um, you know, that's why they'll never do a big pay per view like in the UK or in Saudi Arabia or in Australia is because right, cause they'd have to start up. it at such a weird time. Yeah, sure. But uh, like we said, Montreal is in one of the U S the four U S time, time zones, zone. So it would, uh, yes, it would qualify. Yeah. That crowd was hot. They should, they should definitely think about that. But um, I wanted to ask you about the Elias Bobby Roode match. Cause I have a idea of what I hope they're doing and I'm not sure if they're doing it. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me if I thought Bobby Roode shoot hurt his neck on the ropes, and I was going to say no because he clearly hit in the middle of his chest. Yeah, but that was a good bit. Like you never see anyone. No, hit it's a the... great, it's a great bit, and it's also furthers my love of Elias because I, a, a lot of times in those situations, like they did it with Finn and Seth Rollins back a few months ago, is when they have two guys that they like, they they basically trade wins they'll they'll let Elias go over one week and then Bobby goes over the next week and then they set up you know the third match for the pay-per-view so you know I was I was fully prepared to have to watch Elias take another loss so I was pleasantly surprised that they didn't do that but and the fact that he started the match by saying that he brought back some special tea from Saudi Arabia to help enhance his vocal cords was also I'm on board with that. And it was also awesome that he was like hyping up the greatest Royal Rumble. He's like, everyone was there, you know, so and so, so and so, Kurt Angle, and I eliminated all of them. <laughs> it was a great. But, but no, as far as how they booked the end, no, I, I don't, I'd love to hear your theory because 
I thought it was cool. Like it was a cool ending, and and you know they they played it up well, you know, good enough that I, you know, I'm sure there was people that were like, "Wow, did you know is this for real? Did this really happen, or is this you know a work?" But but no, I don't I don't see where they go from here. Okay, so here's and I haven't read this anywhere, so I don't know if this is out there. If this is so, this is a Dave original. This is a a Dave original at least. I haven't read it. It may be out there, but this is a Dave original, and it may be completely wrong. But okay. So to fill in our listeners, basically, uh, Elias threw him like Bobby Roode was on the apron and threw him into the um, turnbuckle, the actual like turnbuckle part that you buy at Home Depot, the metal uh, thing that connects to the ropes from the post, and he in in storyline hit his neck on it and then went to the floor and the referee stopped the match. Funny side bit is like the referee and the uh, medical people are out there looking at him. Elias goes over to the timekeeper's table and announces himself as the winner, which is really Which funny. is awesome. Oh, it's so great. But here's where I hope they go with this bit is because they started the show before Elias went out to sing to talk about, you know, he got this special tea to help his vocal cords. I want them to say Bobby Roode, like, can't speak now. Because I think uh, Elias would have such a good time, like, the juxtaposition of him being the singer who's trying to take care of his vocal cords, and then he takes away Bobby Roode's voice. Wow, man, you know what? You may need to send a tweet at Vince Vince K. McMahon, too. This is great. I love this. I think that would be really, really funny. Wow. No, I'm a... I'm a I'm a I'm a buying I'm buying I'm not selling this theory I'm buying this theory I like it all right man well you want to get in I promised you a gambling story do you want to get into it yeah no I would uh you know I love gambling all right not as much as uh eating at taco casa is gambling with your intestines but yeah let's have a gambling story that's the new uh rule for Glenn like no taco casa till you've hit your out-of-pocket max for the year <laughs> and just go nuts all right so what you met your deductible this um order away this is actually a really really long article that i read and i will summarize but i want to um read word for word like the first couple paragraphs because it kind of sets the scene um well i'll summarize the very beginning so and I didn't know this, which I feel bad about because I'm a, as we both are, gambling and horse racing enthusiast. The Kentucky Derby's coming up. Yeah. Apparently Hong Kong, huge hub for horse racing, which I didn't know. Um, but they, uh, they have a thing similar to like a bad beat jackpot in a poker room or just the general lottery. So they have a bet um, called the Triple Trio, okay? And this is a... I thought that's what you got at Taco Casa. (laughs) That's what you get at Taco Casa. That's what put Glenn in the hospital, I thought. This is a different kind of Triple Trio. Um, It's essentially a trifecta of trifectas. So you're picking... The top three. I like where this is You're going. The top three, but it's it's a box, right? So you don't have to pick the right order. You just pick the top three finishers. Horses or order doesn't matter. And I guess every race day, it sounds like at least the the big uh, horse track there races twice a week, and you don't get to select the races. Like there's three triple trio selected races, so you have to pick the top three horses in all three of those races um and it's so it's like a really it's like a really more difficult version of like the pick three or the pick five that they have at Lone Star exactly and they say uh I mean obviously there's you know odds so there's favorite horses and long shot horses but if you were just uh saying every horse was equal there's 10 million different combinations that are possible of you know possible outcomes for this triple trio uh, crazy so the way it works is there's you know a set amount of 
the pool for this bet, and if no one hits it, it rolls over to the next race. Um, so this story starts, well, we're actually going to go back further than this, but the start of the paragraph is, on the evening of November 6, 2001, all of Hong Kong was talking about the biggest jackpot the city had ever seen, at least 100 million Hong Kong dollars, at that time about 13 million U.S., for the winner of a single okay. belt called the Triple Trio. Um, <clears throat> it had not been claimed in six times, so it's rolled over six different times. And much like when the Powerball gets really big, it says about a million people have placed bets, the equivalent of one in every seven city residents. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone's on this, right? <laughs> so... Um, I'll skip down a little bit in the story. So it's, you know, kind of setting the scene. You know, it's talking about the last race and the announcer calling it. And then it goes across the road from Happy Valley, which is the race, um, the racetrack. 27 floors up, two Americans sat in a plush office, ignoring the live feed of the action that played on a TV. The only sound was a hum of a dozen computers... Bill Binter and an associate named Paul Colonato, Colonato had their eyes fixed on three computer monitors which displayed a matrix of bets their algorithm had made on the race. They made 51,381 bets in all over like this whole day of races. Binter watched as the software script filtered out the losing bets one at a time until there were 36 lines left on the screen. So this is, they had 36 bets, 36 of these triple trio bets still live going into the final race. So Oh, wow. Yeah, 35 of those bets, if you hit the first two races, you, get, you qualify for a consolation prize. Okay. Um, but they had 36 shots at hitting the... the right three horses in the final race and then as the uh software scrapes out the losing bets on the final race bender says f we hit it it wasn't immediately clear how much money they made so they started because you know those jackpots are kind of estimates they, right. they started trying to do the math and then eight minutes later the tv flashed the final jackpot was 16 million dollars u.s dollars oh Oh, Binter turned to his colleague and said, we can't collect this, can we? No, it would be unsporting. We'd feel bad about ourselves. The two agreed. This is the part that really got my head. I'm like, what? They're not going to. And then it says, on a nearby table of pink betting slips that were all arranged, the two men picked through them, isolating the winning slip. They stared at it for a long time. They posed with a picture laugh for a photo laughing then the two professional gamblers with the biggest prize of their careers decided they would never claim it and locked it away in a safe. You intrigued? Very intrigued. Okay, so... So, so they spent... Would Okay, well, first question, since you've read the mm -hmm. article. did Was this the only day that they tried this, or was this something they were trying over the course of a while? Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But okay, and second of all, I'm assuming it's what a buck a ticket, so that they're in it for fifty one grand. No, um, on it that says day down here. Actually, let me scroll down because it does say what they had initially invested. Um, you know what? Let me let me get to that because I'll 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 find it here in a second when we get to that part of the story. All right, so so we back up. So this guy. Um, Binter, what was his first name? Do, do, do. Bill Binter, yeah. So this guy, good old Bill Binter, who this is like the first interview he's ever um, agreed to do um, about any of this. So he's uh, he's a kid, right? He's like a super smart kid. Um, he's in college, he's studying physics, and he gets obsessed with um, 
a book by Edward Thorpe called Beat the Dealer. It was published in 1962. Um, and it's essentially a card counting blackjack book similar to um you know bringing down the house or what was the movie adaptation called 21. 21 similar to that like how to do it so he's a you know a smart mathematically gifted kid he gets obsessed with this book so he decides to leave college so and go he takes a greyhound bus to las vegas he starts working at a 7-Eleven for $3 an hour, right? So this is back in, this it was uh, like 1980, probably. 1979, I think. Yeah, 1979. Um, so he's making, you know, tiny money. So he, the places he can gamble are the Western or the El Cortez, which I don't know if the Western oh is still around, but the El Cortez definitely is. Oh, El Cortez is definitely still around. Definitely still around. So, you know, and it, the article is pretty cool. It's on uh, Bloomberg if uh, anyone wants to read it. Um, and it talks about, you know, just kind of setting the seed of the people that are in those kind of places. Just the scruffiest of the scruff. Um, oh, right. And just dishonest. Oh, yeah. And... Just absolute trash. So he, you know, he, on a good night, because he's playing tiny money because he doesn't have any money. On a good night, he he might win $40. But they said in among all the the scruffy people in there with, you know, brown bags of uh, cheap whiskey, there are a few other people that are conspicuous because they're sober and they, you know, are intense and focused. And it's basically other kids trying to do the same thing he's doing. So he goes along and he eventually gets uh, introduced to a guy named Alan Wood, who is the leader of an Australian card counting team, which is similar to the MIT team. They're doing the same thing. And, <laughs> and they're, and they're, they're going to take a, take down the El Cortez. Well, no, once he gets hooked up with this guy, this guy has like, he's leading the team. He has a bankroll, right? Um, so, it's no more El Cortez. Now he's playing, which, of course, this was, you know, almost 40 years ago when this is happening. So he starts playing at the Monte Carlo, which apparently was really nice back then. Now, not so much. Indeed. But it paints the picture of, like, the Monte Carlo back then was a happening place. He says he felt like James Bond as, you know, waiters and dinner jackets were serving him. And as he played... Um, so 1980, he's making 80k a year doing this, which was very good money. Oh yeah, in 1980, that's that's great. So him and some of the other people on the team get a get a house, you know, in Vegas, and uh, you know they go and they you know do their work, very similar to the movie 21. Um, at one point, though much like all those movies go, they start getting noticed and they do their best not to get noticed by the pit bosses and the security, but they do. Lawrence Fishburne puts on all the rings. Pretty much. So he's had a good run here of about four years, but in 1984, Benter and Woods, who was the, uh, you know, the captain of the team, the Australian guy, they get put in the Griffin book, which is the blacklist that detectives circulated among casinos. So they can't play in Vegas anymore. The gig's up. Ooh. Yeah. So Woods, the Australian guy that led this, knew there was a giant, giant horse betting to tap in Asia um, in Hong Kong. So he gets excited about doing that. So, this is a crazy stat. Hong Kong's population at that time was 5.5 million. And it bet more on horses than the entire U.S. Wow. So, they love to gamble in Hong Kong. They said in the 1990s, their horse track betting in Hong Kong was reaching $10 billion annually. What? Yeah. Um, 
so then it kind of talks about the uh, odd system in Hong Kong, which is a little different. It's more, um, it's basically, and I should probably do more research, but it says, well, I'll just read what it says. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Unlike odds in a Vegas sports book, which are set in advance and give decisive edge to the house, odds there update fluidly in proportion to how betters are wagering. Winners split the pool. The house skims a commission of about 17%. So essentially, the, they'll only pay out what they bring in for that race day. It's a pool. And no more money can come out than what was bet, and they skim 17% of whatever the pool is. But this kind of comes in uh, into play later, because essentially the, the horse sports book in Hong Kong can never have a bad day. You know, we talk about in Vegas. Right, they're just, they're just getting 17% of the hand. Exactly. But there's essentially no way they ever lose, because they never pay out more than they bring it right yeah so that's a little different than vegas um so they go there and they start um and uh sorry do 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 not wood um i already forgot his name mentor what's the guy's name yeah that sounds um, right. so he's like all right so we're gonna go we're gonna start betting horses so he's a you know academic type guy so he wants to look, and he goes to the uh, UNLV and finds um, an academic paper titled Searching for the Positive Returns at the Track, the Multinominal Logic Model of Handicapping Horse Races. So essentially, this guy that wrote this paper thought there was a way to quantify probabis- probabilistically by taking in variables of straight line speed, size, winning records, skill of the jockey, weight, and all these different things, and essentially creating an algorithm to beat the odds of horse horse racing. So Benter starts teaching himself advanced statistics. He has like the old green and black PC monitors. This is 1984, and starts writing software to essentially feed in data and try to predict horse races so they go out to hong kong their first year they had um a stake of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. and this is now the summer of 1986 so binter and woods go there with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. they lose one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> So now this sounds like a typical day day for a typical return on investment for me at Lone Star. Yeah. So now they have no money. So Binter uh, flies back to Vegas to try to get back hooked up with some of his gambling buddies and get investment, and is unsuccessful. Like no one will give him money. Well, yeah. What well, I mean, what's your sales pitch at that point? <laughs> like, hey, look, I've got a great system. I just lost all my money using it, but but it's about to work. Exactly. Uh, Woods, the Australian guy, he goes to South Korea to gamble. So they meet back. This was they left in the summer. They meet back up in Hong Kong in September. Woods does pretty well in South uh, South Korea, so now he has money. And Binter is essentially bust. So they come back um, and they start re uh, negotiating their partnership. And Woods says, "Hey, now I have all the money. I want a larger share." And asked for 90%. <laughs> and now Binter's like the brains of this, right? Like he's written the... Right, so he's written the algorithm, and now he's given 90% to the other guy. So Binter says, no, not going to do it. So they they essentially split ways. So Binter now needs some money. So he goes back, and he decides to go to Atlantic City. And get back the uh, start his own blackjack team to start making money in Atlantic City. Um, over the next two years, he amasses a few hundred thousand dollars. So now he's like, all right, he's going back to Hong Kong. Um, so Woods there kept uh, Benter's algorithm and his software 
and he's been hiring programmers and mathematicians and has further developed Venter's code. And he's actually making money now. Like, he's got a penthouse in Hong Kong. Like, he's doing all right. Wow. Yeah, so Benter, you know, he's mad. He won't meet with him. He won't speak with him. So Benter goes back, and he, you know, he still has his code. So now he starts trying to um, – it monitored – at this point, it monitored 20 different inputs, right? So he starts trying to figure out um, how to improve it. And I won't go into all the details, but there's some real funny stories. Like he's convinced that uh, temperature, like just, you know, the air temperature affects racing horses differently. And of course, you know, he's trying to look at past data, like racing results to, you know, other data and kind of match up and, and hash out this algorithm. So he, flies from Hong Kong to England because he finds out that England has an archive of Hong Kong weather data. And he like goes to this oh my library, gets all these like years worth of <laughs> weather data and then starts piecing it together and finds out there's no correlation. <laughs> so he scraps that, but then <laughs> he finds some other things that do do work and improves his algorithm and he makes $600,000 the next year wow betting betting horses entirely um wow he he hires a few people you know coders uh mathematicians at one point he gets this super wheels off guy um named um i'll find his name here in a second um and that guy's whole job is to analyze video and basically uh find horses that should have finished higher because they were bumped or tripped or something so this dude has to like watch videos of past horse races um so he uh he the next year 90 to 91 he wins three million dollars wow so this gets into the part of essentially the house can't ever lose the way they do horse betting odds in Hong Kong. So he gets a call from the horse horse track. You know, he's just won $3 million the previous year. He gets a call and he's, you know, his mind goes back to Vegas where he got tapped by security and got blacklisted and all that. Right. But theoretically they shouldn't care because they get their money no matter what, who's winning the money. Exactly. And that's what he unless he's making unless he's making it where but I, I don't even understand that because it really what he does has no outcome and what everybody else would bet or make exactly so they come and they're like happy they're like hey you know we like having more money in the prize pool and this guy's betting big money so they ask what can we do to help you you're one of our best customers and he says. I want a customer input terminal. So basically he can directly post bets on his own from his office. Like, you know, they have the little kiosk at Lone Star Park. He essentially... So he doesn't have to go to the track. He essentially gets like a line. They install a line that he can hook directly into his computer and make bets from. Wow. So he does this. He... um, uh, ends up by the end. I'm gonna skip ahead because I don't want to take up too much time. By the end of it, he uh, he has 120 inputs per horse that he's feeding into his algorithm, and he's he's killing it right. So in 1997, um, there's a lot of uh, political things going on. The British, who uh, Hong Kong was uh, like a British territory or colonial rule or whatever, they're about to set it back over to the uh, to China, right? So there's real unrest on what's going to happen there and what that does to horse racing. So meanwhile, uh, Benter hits the triple trio jackpot in 1997. 
um, which was worth 50 million Hong Kong dollars, right? Right. So, like, and it's like winning the Powerball, like, you know, some security guard won it, and, you know, he's all over every news camera like he had won it before. So now he wins it, and they're now um, it's kind of coming out that basically this American with computers is pulling money out of the prize pool like at huge sums because he's so good at this, right? So it's bad press for the, the horse track, so they revoke his his direct bet line. Oh, he, lo- he loses his terminal. They pull that out. He has someone on his team try to go make a, a bet over the phone, and they tell him their account's been suspended um, pending investigation. So now he's he's hosed again. So he flies back to Vegas trying to figure out what to do. Um, phone betting's out. He doesn't have his own terminal. <laughs> so he comes back um, a few months later with all his you know computers, all his stuff again, and basically has, which I guess you just pick up. They're like, you know, like the fill in yourself lottery tickets. Like they just use those at the horse track and then you mark in. So he gets a huge stack of those in a printer and basically goes and sets up an office directly across the street from an off-track betting place. So he gets all the odds, he feeds everything into the computer, and then it prints on the um, slips just like the printers at the track would do. So he'll print off, you know, hundreds of these tickets and then he'll have his little minions run across right before the race to the off-track place and he already uh, got credit vouchers at each of these off-track things for a million Hong Kong dollars so they basically run over there with the voucher and the the tickets and he's back up to his old tricks way more manual than it used to be but wow yeah so essentially um, where the story started so he's just crushing it for like 10 years over in Hong Kong so back to where the story started he uh, had he paid 1.6 million Hong Kong dollars for his 51,000 bets on that triple trio so 1.6 wow. million to win 116 million or whatever it was and then he wins and he won't even he won't even cash it so it becomes like a big thing because like the lottery they know they sold the winning ticket so there's all kinds of these headlines like the ghost of the unclaimed 118 million triple trio and it's like now people are investigating because they want to know the story and trying to track it down and uh benter finally sends a anonymous letter saying hey because I guess the um, process is if they know someone won, but it's never claimed because it's like a, you know, government run thing, they donate it, whatever the winning is to charity. So Benter sends them a letter and it's like, hey, I want it, but I'm not going to claim it. Give it to charity. And wow. Um, yeah. So later, I guess the next year the race club officials lifted his telephone betting band in probably in regards to him donating the money. And now he's, he's back. at it. <laughs> he's back, back at it with his remote, remote access. Yeah. Wow. That's, cr- that is a crazy story. I had no idea it's r- that horse racing was so big in Hong Kong. I mean, just that that's insane. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's a long read. I really summarized it, and it, the summary was still long, but it's really, really interesting to, because, I mean, you know, horse racing is one of those things that you you can't overcome it is the the thought, you know. It's just too right. too many variables, and this guy, this guy figured it out. Man, you know, please tweet that out, because I'm very interested in reading this. So here's the best part is, um, so, you know, 
the hey we I can't believe it we won and then they decide not to not to collect the you know 16 million in US dollars it says they posed laughing for a photo they put the ticket in the in a safe and locked it no big deal venter figured they could make it back and moreover for the rest of this year's racing season unbelievable this guys just crushing it no that's like the uh you know the pool hustler that lets the mark win enough that, you know that they know they can get it all back into big bets and but still that's insane Isn't that a wild story but it might yeah that's a great story We've had two wild stories today, one of horse racing and one of intestinal bacteria. So are are we I, having the wake for Glenn at Lava Cantina? Yes. <laughs> so I think if we can time it with Ric Flair's appearance there, we could really get a lot of bucket list items knocked off at once. But That'll just uh, go to show Glenn was always real cocky that he was going to outlive Ric Flair and not so much. <laughs> and now the line, that betting line has suddenly moved very close together. But, hey, as you like to say, maybe maybe Glenn will kick out on too. It can do just what you want.